Over to you, Sir Jack. You want to kick us off? Yeah. Are we allowed to stand up? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Eric, do you want to come out here? You don't have to hide behind the. I'm willing, I'm willing, I'm willing to do whatever you tell me to do. The clock hasn't started yet. I mean, now he interfered. Okay, clock starts. So look, I have five points to make or five topics to touch on, and during those five, I'm going to speak to three sports. Prior to the, the drama that will follow pertaining some other sports, including the fastest growing sport in the world for which these other people are responsible, and, and I'm not. The, um, Jax and Barb, Barbara, uh, have promised to keep track of what we do together and to make sure that those five are covered. And topic number one. After gathering in various venues around the world, addressing a range of interesting topics, as everyone knows, occurs within 361, Mark has given me, given me permission to introduce to you my family. And the sport that I'll comment on as I introduce our family to you is squash. And what I'm about to describe, describe relative to their accomplishments are theirs, not mine. So if this seems like it's about me, it's not. Uh, Peg and I have four children. All were champions at different ages in junior squash growing up in Cincinnati, Ohio, of all places, uh, which is not, not the number one hotbed of that game, which is largely on the East Coast and other parts of the world. And all four were captains of their college squash teams, led them to national collegiate championships, and two then turned pro and lived in Europe and traveled Asia going to tournaments. There's a pro circuit that's pretty robust. So you're going to meet them. And the way that you're going to meet them is I'm, I'm going to we are going to share with you a uh, quick holiday greeting that we generated and the context is this and, and be prepared to this is you too be prepared to, to focus uh, because this moves real quickly and you might miss something of interest the, the operative words might you have to pay attention um, our 50th wedding anniversary occurred earlier this earlier in 23 and uh I, I know everybody knows math, but that's a half century that that uh, we've Peg and I have been married. And in order to to celebrate that, and in conjunction with that, we determined that of our four children who are all married to their first spouse, um, they collectively have been married for 50 years. So we created a 100-year celebration. Spent two weeks in Italy together. 
with 11 grandchildren, so 21 in total. And, and this message is from that two-week period in the, the great nation of Italy. Are there any Italians here? I understand that you've gone from Heidelberg all the way to Cincinnati. Yeah. What a smart guy you are. Yeah, fire away. didn't give me enough time. <laughs> but, but yes, one of us is secretary of one, and one is of the other, and, and my mission is state. Let's <laughs> <laughs> talk about things in the book here. All right. And we're going we're to incentivize people to do something with these books. Uh, our oldest, uh, obviously, you're not going to necessarily connect to the pictures Having, the, having just sailed right by, but Jack, our, son, our oldest Jack is 50 and is the squash coach at the University of Pennsylvania, has been for 20 years and uh, played at a competitive school, so gets a lot of grief for, for uh, coaching against his, uh, his alma mater. Missy, which, with the same school as Jack, two years apart, 48. She lives in San Francisco, is the number, and a number of you are from the Bay Area, I realize. Uh, she's the number one female squash player in Northern California still at, at that age and also plays pickleball every day. Tim, who parenthetically is married to the editor of the editorial page of the New York Times, um, lives in Brooklyn Heights and, and runs Squash and Education Alliance, about which some of us spoke yesterday, and that's a program in 25 cities in the U.S. and selected other countries, South Africa, uh, Colombia, the U.K., inner-city programs that use education and the game of squash to change the tra trajectory of children who are below the federal poverty line and in difficult circumstances. Obviously, there are a lot of initiatives 
a number of them referenced here over the last couple of days that are focused on changing lives, and, and that's one that has demonstrated substantial uh, impact. And maybe we're going to touch on impact as one of the important attributes of, of philanthropy, and that's one where the numbers are compelling and the students go on to places they never dreamed of. Uh, our son Chris spent uh, eight years in the Obama White House and, uh, and, and now, interestingly, is running a project to, ask, to, to identify and prioritize the world's 7,000 rare diseases which, pause, afflict 30 million people. And the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation went to him and asked him if he would run a two-year project to figure out which of those can be attacked and solved. And part of the thesis is that the big players, the government and the, you know, the NIH and, and universities focus on the brand name diseases and they, Zuckerberg in this case, driven really by his wife, Ken, uh, want to make a difference on the smaller stuff. And he, as a history major, is now spending all day with scientists and doctors, and so that's a, a you know, it creates some family humor too. But they all, they're all still playing squash. Uh, my wife played squash at Smith College, and and this is we're beginning topic number two, the two of five. The introduction was topic number one. My my wife Peg was the was and is the first woman hired into the management of any Fortune 500 corporation. 1967, the Procter and Gamble Company. No women, and through through a through a series of events, she ended up there and spent 20 years. Wrapping it up, reporting to a guy named John Smale, who was the CEO of the corporation back in the 70s and 80s. And, and she left the company in 1985 and has reinvented herself about four times since <coughs> in various settings, including a family real estate office. And she also created a, a venture fund that only invested in women and, and et cetera, other stuff. However, um, Everything went silent for a while when she left in 1985. And then you know, a couple decades later, people started asking, well, wait a minute. You know, how did all this come about? Now that there are women in corporations uh, and policies and practices uh, attendant there too, how did the first person happen? And she was not only the first at Procter & Gamble, but research revealed she was the first in all of corporate America or major corporate America, as I've already Referenced, and so one thing led to another, and that gave rise to this book, One Red Shoe, which is her story, including all of the bad and all of the good of what happened uh, as a female in a male environment where she was explicitly told, we don't want you here and we, we shall uh, help, help you fail. Was it the category that she was applying for uh, as man? Well, title? <laughs> brand man? Brand man. She, she walked in the front door of the company, summa cum laude graduate of Smith, started a company, turned down at uh, various law schools, uh, and so she walked in the front door of Procter & Gamble, 
in a city where she grew up, so she was aware of the corporation and, and its reputation, uh, high standards, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and said to a elderly lady with gray hair at the front door, it's behind some desk, I'm here to apply for a job, and this person gave her a test, and Peg handed it back, which is in the book, and, and uh, said, uh, I, I don't type, and I'm not going to learn to type. Do you have a test for do you have a test for how people think? And for some reason, we've not been able to figure out and can't now, times past. This woman handed her the brand man test, which, no pun here, it was intended only for men. And she took it, scored well. HR went into a, tiz, into a tizzy about what do we do, what do we do? More long story, et cetera. Finally, finally went to work. But it was 1967. And, and the turning point for women is arguably 1973, Bobby Riggs, and, and the famous one. That was good. Uh, uh, sports. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, given Title IX and all of what stemmed. But when she went to work in 1967, there were no governmental policies, nor were there corporate policies because there were no women. And, and most guys aren't smart enough to figure out what to do anyway. So she went through about six years of uh, difficult circumstances. Finally, the, a P&G lawyer gave a speech to the company's management and explained that there's legislation and new norms uh, and mores and that they have to, one, ascertain what they are and follow them. And you know, she then was followed by... You know, a few more women, and now the, that company, as well, as well as plenty of others, have uh, have significant percentages of their senior people, not enough yet, uh, who are female. So, about her book, uh, I'm not here to sell it. I'm here to do something else. <clears throat> because because of our 50th or 100, if you if you like that math. Notable, at least in the context of our lives. And in light of Stephen Burke's 200th, coming up shortly, those people in the audience who either have or will hereby commit to do a video about Stephen, to acknowledge his impact on us across these four years and 200 events, you, you can walk right up and take one of these books if you fit into that category. Okay, and you have to you do something first. I'll explain. Okay. But go ahead. Well, so, so they're here. The, the price is free, but, but for the obligation that I just described. So you can talk to yourself about how much you want the book and how much you care about Stephen. And you, you can, you can keep the answers to yourself. I'll be very specific to see what I think about topic three, four, five. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're going to put on the screen. And this is, you go to 361 firm, and this is, if you want to have this book, you have to go to 361firm.com slash 200. I wish Stephen wasn't in the room. But, uh, and if you scroll down, I'll do it. He's got to be as close as anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, all you need to do is say what you like about it or not. 
and do a video. So we're going to take a pause. You can literally, we're going to take a three, four minute pause. 30 second video of what you like about these briefings. Because we do a montage. And in fact, you did one. You did that one. Did you want that one? Oh, they did this. Let's see. Where's your phone? Honey, you deserve one, notwithstanding the rules. If you base these three things and you want them to continue, this, and if you haven't faced them, then Tuesday at 11, 11 o'clock, our community comes together. 11 a.m., if we get questions, we lose Asia a little bit. Um, and then if you want to subscribe to these three things, you can do that. If you want to suggest anything, you can do that. Oh, we are gathering in New York. Next Tuesday, we're gathering in Miami. Uh, we'll announce where we're going to go. Uh, every Tuesday, 11 a.m., Ken Goldman is going to join us. He's the uh, CIO, former CIO for uh, Kent, for um, Eric Schmidt's family office. We'll be wherever we choose to be in Miami at 11 o'clock. Actually, it'll be 1030. We have a town meetup. So if you want to book, we know the submission time. So I mean, I'm not seeing anybody do their, do their videos there. I'm just done. Well, if some people want permission to do it right after the session? No, that's a I've done this before. Hey, one of our messages to be very private. I'm sorry. Yes, you can step outside and make it very private. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not moving from the. Uh, how many books do we have? So is this also a natural break? It could be. I'm not moving for I love 50 Yes. Yes. That would be <laughs> Does the commentary have to be all or mostly truthful?
relating to sports, you're going to mention it. I your contributions to the 361 global community have served as the bright red thread of the zeitgeist through all the recent seismic changes in our world. First of all, Stephen, let me thank you personally for giving me some of the tools that I can use to make myself look a little bit more brilliant, well-informed than I really am. You know, I'm impressed because I, I can't get people to listen to me for 100 seconds, let alone 100 weeks. More than anything, I can't pick just one episode, but I kind of say that I really appreciate the super thoughtful lens that you use to share your insights and always incorporating um, both head and heart. And you've been covering so many subjects, so such shape, answering so many questions from so many angles. I want to congratulate you on the 100th episode of Awesome. Yeah, and definitely obviously working with someone to be able to do 2,100. Obviously, every Tuesday, you have to be able to see. To be able to have such a tremendous accomplishment, to share your knowledge, experience, expertise with everybody is a blessing. Congratulations on the 100th session. I'm looking forward to the next 100 sessions with your finger on the pulse. Knowing our Irish connection and the fact that I went to the University of Limerick, Julie Rochu A. Limerick. Many thanks to our friend Stephen Burke for his briefing and his hard work, for his insights, news, and views. From him, we take our cues so that none of us go berserk. Yeah. And keep up the good work in the gym, too. Maybe you'll be saying and some supporters of you about it next day. Congrats. It really has been a enjoyable, so formative. It's more than that. You are like our anchor man. In any case, if I think of a memorable moment from Stephen Burke's presentation, when Stephen shared his impressions of the 361 Midwest tour that happened back in September, and he described as you know this spirit, the spirit of the workers and the a lot of the innovators that we met here. My favorite part of the briefing is everyone coming together from all over the world, from every continent, I think, and uh, just a different perspective. People, some people are traders, some people are long-term investors. So it's really, it's uh, interesting to discuss any events that happen. Well, I really appreciate the ability to get the conversation focused on what really matters. And as a colleague and a friend, I, I'm telling you, I can't appreciate that enough. Here's Stephen. He's very charming on certain times over the last few years. There's been one thing in the central West Square, and that's Tuesday morning at 11 o'clock Eastern. That's true. It basically started, as you know, uh, officially in London. Uh, where's Stephen? He's heading up to Paris. Is he still here? Yes, he's still here. <laughs> well, we barred him from leaving. So just, it is a special uh, milestone for us. It really started in London, 
He comes in with five newspapers, sits right there, he's the first one there, second. And, and everybody just starts sitting down and he'll tell you what just happened in the world. PFP, Congress, whichever, and, uh, and he also shows both sides of the story, which is so in the siloed world right now. And uh, that's, that's important. Like what, what the bears, the bulls, or just, you know, and he's on record. You go to our YouTube, it's all there. And uh, to talk about what we were going through with COVID, I mean, to have somebody, and you got it wrong a lot of times. Yes. Yeah. Like, Which like, is why I don't like it being recorded, but that's <laughs> And there's a disclaimer at the top, but the week before Russians invaded Ukraine, he brought six scenarios. And there's no way. I think it was 99% consensus. There's no way they would be dead. Submit five. Oh, yeah. you, I'm going to try it on my computer. Yeah, we did it in 21. You, you, you have an end you can sit in the video. Yeah. Okay, okay. Mark, he's an honest guy. We, <laughs> you can believe him. Maybe not so much. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> if we don't do this, you don't do it because you're also busy. <laughs> I, you could be pretending to be busy. And then, like, really, send text messages. You wouldn't do that. Oh, you wouldn't do that. Mark, do you want to get the pickleball checks done and put things together for us? I know, I know. Well, but we've been through two, so we're 40% on the way. <laughs> All right. I'm going to put the trust factor. Yes, Deshaun? We have four. That's it. I'm not going. I'm not leaving. <laughs> You're one of the four? Come up and get a book. My favorite story is having dinner with Peg, with Stephen, and Stephen asking Peg for advice on how he should coach his daughter, who just got cashed over. No, she, her, her peer received a much higher increase in salary. And, and the advice was, not just ask for parity, ask for more. She did. I think she got it. She got it. She got it. That's tech. This is the other system. I can never see the other system. It's true. Jack just might autograph some of these, too. Let's have Peg autograph. Baker, you're Baker, show up. Anyone else? Is there the books? Thank you, panelists, for being patient.
tip of the hat to our friend, our leader, Mark. Mark, I am tipping our collective hat to you. And that's not why I wanted you to go to the three. And while the, the unplanned applause underscores the validity of the tip of a hat, one example of the numerous initiatives that Mark has enabled the group 361 to launch is three or four years ago, he challenged us as a group to create a venture fund, early stage venture fund, that would build on the low valuations in the Midwest, coupled with high morals and high potential return, and we created 361 Ohio Technology Fund. And some of the people in this room are investors, some others should be and can be, if you whisper to me carefully, and and it is exceeding its expectations. And since the rules are that I can't say what the multiple of return is likely to be, I won't. But it's exceeding its expectations. And it's been joyful for me to be the manager of that fund and therefore interact with, with various colleagues under the 361 umbrella. 35 portfolio companies, all tech-based, exciting stuff. The and that's number four. Well, I guess the tip of the hat was number three, but but commenting on 361 Ohio Technology Fund is topic number four, and therefore, based on our your math, my math, we're down to one. Mark has challenged us to create a 361 sports fund, and the sports fund will pull together in kind of an a la carte respect uh, sports businesses in which we can invest in order to make a substantial return, not just to play the sport and have fun. Uh, but but it, it's intended to take advantage of the increasing democratization of sports that's occurring in both public and private settings. and. Part of what's interesting about this new initiative that's being established today, by the way, deadline for when it's up and running and, uh, and we rejoice it, is Sunday, January 26, 2025. So if anybody has trouble memorizing that, just come to this room exactly one year from now and, and we'll be talking about the 361 Sports Fund. We perceive that it'll include pickleball, and there's some strong initiatives underway where we can be uh, in on the ground floor of those programs that we're about to hear about. And my experience, I'm hoping we can attempt to capitalize on uh, as values of proteins continue to grow and, and in short, virtually all of the evidence pertaining to the value of pro sports leads to the conclusion of continued growth, continued value. When 
we, when a group of which I'm part, 15 people, bought the Cincinnati Reds in 2005. The Reds, we bought the team for 270 million. Revenue was, the prior year was 123 million. And this, this is all Walter Company. The and, being recorded, and, so you know. Oh, I might slur my words a little um, And last year, the team did 300 million up from the 123, and Forbes reported the value of the Cincinnati Reds last April, soon to be revised, at 1.2 billion. And in addition to buying the, the team for 270, we also have had knocked down the, the underlying debt that was part of the purchase price by about uh, $80 million. So th there's an attractive uptick there, but that's just one professional team. And gaining entry to those to the, to the inner sanctum of those enterprises is extremely difficult. Baseball, there are 30 teams. And it's pretty hard to get in. Although some people are beginning to either execute or talk about and plan breaking up into pieces, creating limited partner kinds of environments, and hence the democratization that I just referenced seems to be occurring. And, and I and I believe, without going through all the reasons here, although I would if somebody wants to ask later, I believe that it's the evidence as the continued growth is compelling. And interestingly, last year, attendance was up for the first time in some years. And it's largely due to those who are baseball fans know that the game was altered uh, some. And, and now a game, a game gets wrapped up in about three hours and ten minutes instead of three, three hours and thirty minutes. So minor changes have turned out to have a big impact. So my exposure to baseball causes me to want to find ways to guide us into enterprises similar not necessarily that one, but similar to that, as long as they're, they're potentially of high profit and as long as we can figure out the exit. I'm also in, a, in a, the MLS team, FC Cincinnati, and, and have the pleasure, perhaps, distinction of being the first investor, first check writer. It's 2014, and I wrote a check for $100,000 to back a person who was determined to figure out how to create a soccer team in Cincinnati, uh, but there wasn't one. So he, he, he had to go find it, put, put the pieces together. We ended up with a team in USL, United Soccer League, for those who know put, put, real football. And, and uh, this might be too granular, so I'm going to say it real fast. The, the, uh, I put the group that put it together in my venture capital firm office, that being what I do in, in life mostly, in case you don't know. And, and uh, this group believed that they were going to do 10,000 10, per game attendance. And when I finally got the data on the 30 teams in the USL, the number one team, well, the average attendance was 3,200 in the league. The number one team was Sacramento, solid franchise, doing about 9,300 per game. And this new team in a place called Cincinnati, which baseball-wise is the 28th market 
So it's, it's a relatively small market, 2.2 million uh, people. And uh, I fought tooth and nail with the team to, to convince them that the facts didn't support uh, a business plan that would spend against 10,000 attendance per game. And in our first year with that USL team, same name, FC Cincinnati, the team did, the, the business did 17,000 per game, and and I think that's to some extent illustrative of, of soccer finally, finally, finally taking hold. It took longer for soccer uh, or real football than pickleball, which has about 5 million players, but that's for them to say, not for me. And, and so we gained entry to MLS. 150 million to buy to buy the right to go into the league. That's now at 400 million, and uh, the numbers are all cranking upward. We built a stadium in Cincinnati for 300 million dollars, and uh, the attendance is 25,300, and we exceed that number for all 18 home matches. So, so soccer is happening in a dramatic way in our midst. America's finally coming around. Obviously, this year's NFL season illustrates that that game's not going away. But soccer, given all the children that play that game, boys and girls, uh, its its run is going to continue, and we're in the hunt. And we're, I guess I'm a little worried about saying all this, but I, I'll have to get over it. Uh, we're in the hunt to, to bring a, a women's team which, given, given the family dynamics, pretty darn important that, uh, that we help make that happen. So, uh, item number five uh, has to do with our sports fund. I just gave you kind of a quick uh, collection of info about, about Cincinnati Reds and FC Cincinnati over on the MLS side of things. And, and for fear that Mark may walk all the way up here and, in, and, impair, and impair our relationship, I'm going to stop right now. <laughs> and since Thank you've you. been tipped, so to speak, I'll now just take that off too. <laughs> but you know, if you play pickleball and you, you come close to the kitchen and your hat comes off, it's a foul. It's a problem. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to talk, we're going to shift gears to pickleball on the three different levels, maybe more. It's the fastest growing sport in the U.S. We have some owners here of the fastest growing sport in the world, a cousin of pickleball, uh, Fidel. But we're in the U.S. and we're going to talk about pickleball. So every year, at least three years in a row, uh, Bob Stroman has, uh, and he'll introduce himself properly. Bob, are you, are you pretty pleased with the way I've set this up for you? You're brilliant. <laughs> so Bob, uh, Bob hosts us. We're going to go over there uh, for the noon start for a pickleball mixer. Some of you played yesterday. And now he's also going to talk about what's happening in the pickleball sports world broadly. Uh, from an investment standpoint. This is a presentation we'll talk about tomorrow. Right. That's the one. Sure. 
And these are 85% of them stayed in Naples for less than three weeks. So those are the true tourist people. And this whole facility is funded in the physical plant by the uh, economic development tax revenue from hospitality. So that's where the money comes. So whenever a member or someone says, why are we paying for anything here? I'm a taxpayer. Uh, we try to explain to them that they may be a general revenue taxpayer, but they are not necessarily a contributor to the revenue pool that's being funded here uh, because it, they're not visitors. Uh, and they're not, as they put it, they're, they're not part of the heads of the beds, the hotel side. Um, and so we've gotten to the point now where we actually are revenue positive, you know, where we've grown uh, 300% in three years. Um, and and actually get to the point now where it actually looks and like business and it gives us the ability to invest back into services to help expand the enjoyment of the members, even though they constantly debate whether we're providing any value. During the season, we have 1,000 players a day that play in the facility. Uh, we have all 64 courts uh, being played on, and we have probably 250 people waiting to play at any given moment of time. So obviously the, the question is, is about how do we how do we get more court time? Why do we build more courts? You know, they make it sound so simple, uh, but it's not quite that simple. So we do the best we can. It's open from eight in the morning. People show up actually at six in the morning, and they bring their own lights and hang them on the fence. And so it really goes from six to ten at night, uh, and that's what the facility looks like. Um, and it's, you know, uh, if you when you go over there, for those who go over there uh, today, you're going to see that parking may be a challenge. And this is actually, um, and you, you, this group is going to be playing in that back section of nine courts that are reserved just for 361. Same, same as yesterday. Same, uh, yes, same yeah. as yesterday. I'll go back to the previous slide, thing. I wasn't planning on showing this slide, but that's okay. But then there is the entrepreneurial entry into the social aspect. There's chicken and pickle. Uh, chicken and pickle is like, I refer to it in a very loose fashion, uh, the top golf pickleball, uh, where pickleball is almost secondary. It's the restaurant, it's the fun, it's the social, bean bag trucks, it's concerts, it's all these other things that pickleball gets to be just the conduit to get them there. And it's the restaurant, the beer that gets them to stay there. Uh, uh, and they make, you know, they have learned that it's all of those residual revenues that makes it possible to actually make money. Uh, there's the role of these private covered multi-court facilities. Everyone thinks, it kind of reminds me of the racquetball days, where you saw a racquetball court popping up all over the place because they thought that this was going to be a no-brainer. Uh, then you saw this curve switch and, and racquetball courts were not being used because they got to be overbuilt in relation to the demand. Um, I have great concerns that there's going to be a glut of uh, overbuilt pickleball courts long term unless they figure out a model to generate more revenue other than just court fees because you just can't support the overhead associated with a facility by the court fees that you're going to charge to the member of the court. And then you have, uh, uh, and so it really becomes how do you develop value added? And one of the things that we are doing, which is kind of uh, counterintuitive to a community private venture, is that we are starting to do things that are outside of the traditional facility. People say, what makes you different? And you can't say we have 66 courts because 
big deal. You get a lot of courts. Someday someone's going to have 67 or 100 or 150. Uh, and, it, and so we're starting to develop a, a affiliations and relationships with other people that all deal with the social community aspect of pickleball. Um, COVID was a driving force because people were so uh, pent up being alone. And they find that pickleball has become just a, a savior, so to speak, in regards to social interaction with other people and a sense of community. And so we have uh, become, any of you have heard of uh, 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 Butner, who had uh, the Blue Zone. Have you ever heard, who's heard of Blue Zone? Okay. Longevity to 100, you know, what, what makes different organizations and segments of the world have the highest percentage of centurions, people living in 100, quality of life. And Collier County is a blue zone community, and we've, we've made a decision to be a blue zone entity where we are doing things to build a sense of community because there's nine principles. I won't go through all nine, but it's exercise. We've got that one nailed. Sense of community. We're starting to do more things that are community-driven. Um, meaningful life. Um, we're doing volunteers, um, opportunities. Uh, every month we do many tournaments where all of the profits go to local charities. Uh, so it's the truly uh, entrepreneurial, humanitarian, public venture that has created just a different identity of who we are uh, because people like to be associated with having common values. And uh, we just made a decision that part of our value is giving back to the community and those that are less fortunate especially in an area like Naples where we have a tendency to live in a little bit of a bubble, which I think is a mild understatement. Um, then we have the next generation, which is professional pickleball. And there's always been professional players, and those are the players that have chosen to give lessons, play in tournaments, maybe make 500 bucks because they win a tournament back in the day, spend a thousand go to tournaments so they could win 500. Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, some very wealthy people said, we're going to start a major league pickleball, MLP. Uh, they're going to go out uh, hire and sign young pros, I'll call it the PGA equivalent, the young pickleball players, signing them to contracts that were multiple, multiple six-figure contracts without having any documented proof of what the revenue stream and monetization of that was going to be and whether advertising, attendance, and supporters were going to be able to support this. Uh, rumors, uh, there's also the PPA, Professional Pickleball Association, also eventually owned by a billionaire. The, big, um, the kids started fighting um, because it wasn't about money, it was about ego and pride. And, uh, Which billionaire? Pardon? Which billionaire? Tom Dunn. Tom Dunn was one, and I'm not sure who. Steve Kuhn? Steve Kuhn. Um, and they started making decisions because they tried to capture the market and later found out that after spending $40 million and having revenue of maybe four, um, that maybe that model wasn't working. And uh, I would say that that segment of the league in professional is a little bit in chaos. A lot of the pros right now are not being paid because they're trying to figure out how to cut expenses. And uh, I think that the whole decision was to go into the league without documented proof that they could get the viewerships and the social media support that could justify TV revenue. And TV revenue is all based upon advertisers and that whole circle. And uh, so that school is out on that level. Um, 
uh, it's a team that was started, Jack, you were talking about the growth of the value. Uh, Major League Pickleball, the first team was sold for 100000 It was reported that um, LeBron James paid $10 million. Uh, and uh, it's worth not $10 million. Let's put it that way. Um, the, then a year later, uh, a new league was formed, the National Pickleball League, and that is the equivalent of the Champions Tour of Golf. You know, it's the 50-plus. And it was developed primarily because of the advent of the PGA and the Major League Pickle. All the emphasis was on young kids. And all of the people that created the legacy of the game were, in essence, kind of being put off to the side. And so the National Pickleball League was formed. Uh, I, was one of, I was actually the first owner of that team. Um, and that was a classic case where the economic model didn't make sense, but I had to Fear of missing out. Um, because we thought that the day will come that there will be enough interest to support this to be a really viable entity as long as we have adequate patience to build the base, um, be prudent on how the league is structured, uh, keep salaries under control every year, make sure that you have money in the bank as opposed to debt uh, on the balance sheet. And uh, so last year we had six teams, this year we doubled to 12 all around the country. Uh, so we have about 160 players playing in the National Pickleball League, and we're cautiously entering into the social media side slash advertising because those go hand in hand, and each team is being responsible for managing their own resources. So it's uh, I think it's a viable entry, but we're all got to call this ultra patient money. But if the multiples start growing like we saw in soccer, because it took a long time for soccer to really catch the wave because you're waiting for that younger generation to play enough pickleball to that they want to go out and start watching it professionally at TV and have money and sometimes you know I, I coached soccer back in 1974 uh, you know in college and in high school and it was not until 19 maybe 2000 that it even became a rivals professional sport or maybe even what, what, what's the buy-in range for NLP franchises? Uh, let's see, what does my confidential agreement say? Uh, <laughs> uh, what, what, six, what have you heard on the street? Yeah, the rumor is it's about six fifty right now only for a team. Last year it was less than half of that, um, and it's a supply and demand issue right now. We had we made a commitment to have only six new teams this year, and we had eighteen that wanted to buy. Uh, but we chose not to uh, get greedy uh, because you could have a bidding war because our intent is to be around the long term. And you want everyone to feel like they are treated fairly. So um, it's just kind of the culture that we've developed. Um, and so the plan is to have 24 or a maximum of 30 teams around the country and then stop and then just grow it organically through uh, advertising, social media, and uh, community involvement. And then the last side is, you know, which is the other real business side of this thing, is all of the equipment that is needed to support this whole infrastructure because if you have 30 million people playing, uh, it's amazing. Uh, we, we built a brand new pro shop, and one of the providers is Tyrell Shoes. Kevin, come on up here. Kevin was the founder of Tyrell Shoes. Uh, it was a dedicated shoe company. Uh, prior to our relationship with Tyrol and the, the Pro Shop, we sold maybe 100 pairs of shoes a season. 
Last year we sold about 1,300 pair um, in our six months of real viable operation in the winter. And uh, it's become just a, the, the real, it's really a profitable center of, of operating business. And Kevin has developed a shoe company that is remarkably uh, attractive. Thank you. Thanks. It's a real pleasure to be here and uh, maybe speak to all of you. Um, it's kind of funny. I, I, uh, I've been in the shoe business my whole life. And uh, from playing junior hockey, I started with our skate company and then I went from the sporting goods side into the work and work boot and hiking boot side where um, I bought uh, a company, uh, grew it, uh, multi-fold, sold it to uh, Dickies in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, and stayed on, was supposed to stay for three years, stayed on for nine years to manage that company. Uh, it was, um, I came down here to retire and uh, my wife said I launched retirement because she started to play pickleball and was complaining about her feet hurting. So. Uh, I went out and said, oh, let's have a look at all these shoes. We went out to buy footwear in the marketplace, and I found it sorely lacking uh, with respect to a uh, performance product that, that really would give the player really any benefit of use. And everybody said, well, just buy tennis shoes, just buy court shoes. Well, there's a big difference in pickleball and tennis with respect to sports footwear. So uh, we did take a look at it. We, we did all kinds of filming and whatnot where we looked at the analytical side of it and, and the kinetic movement on the court of how people played in pickleball versus tennis. And the start, stop, forward, back uh, really showed that if you had any kind of heel lift in your shoe, you're going to have problems playing pickleball. You're very easy to twist your ankle, turn over. Um, so we decided to get very scientific about how we developed the shoe. And in 2000, December 2018, we delivered the first pickleball-specific shoes. And I had all kinds of friends that said to me, man, you blushed your mind. You know, you shoot them. What the heck is this? Don't, don't know what pickleball is, but I really don't know what pickleball shoes are. So, uh, so we, we kind of look at ourselves as the craft brewer of the industry. Uh, we're, we're not, uh, we're out there competing with the sketchers and, and all the guys that have come on board with, uh, you know, all the big uh, athletic brands, a lot of which are just putting pickleball on a, in the name pickleball on a, on a court shoe, which to me kind of insults the consumer uh, and, and insults their intelligence anyhow of, of saying that there is a difference in the, in the sport. So we created a tireable brand. We, we, we looked at, as I said, the kinetic movement. We made sure we had lots of stability and torsional stability in the shoe, uh, tested it thoroughly, um, and we're in the we just got our business rolling nicely, and then this crazy thing called COVID hit, which uh, really gave us just one more obstacle to work work through, which we've been able to do. And um, you know, we've we've uh, recovered from that. We're just in the real uh, growth stage of our business right now. We're, we're we've got lots of new uh, retailers coming on board. Uh, we've got a very strong um, online businesses being developed. Um, the shoe business is a, is a funny business in that you only need to have one element work and it can explode. And uh, we've seen that with many brands. And we feel that with, with pickleball, there's a, there's a big opportunity to be the leader in this specific category. And one of the, the challenges that people have, and, and what we really look at as a, as a positive for us, is the amount of uh, injuries that are, are, are seen and, and reported daily, uh, $377 million on CNN for court shoes. Um, crazy. So we really 
a design issue to give the wear, stability, support, and performance on the court. Do you have any with you? Because I know Jim was talking about we're going to have some prizes like Mike Jack's Peg's book. We do. They're in the pro shop. There you go. So we've got a few pairs to give away today to people with that. What's next for you in the business? Well, we're scaling. We've just put together a national sales force. We're opening new accounts daily. We've just opened up with Shields. There's a big push from the running shoe category today, like retailers like Fit to Run, Roadrunner, those types of – they're looking to expand into pickleball because so many people are coming into the stores now asking, hey, do you sell pickleball shoes or can I wear this running shoe for pickleball? The absolute worst footwear to wear in pickleball is a running shoe because it's not a matter of when or if. So let's do a poll. How many people are going to play pickleball with a running shoe today? I think just out of the spirit of time, and I'm going to help Marcus, I'm going to call up Barry. Barry, to talk briefly, Barry is one of the great pickleball players in the industry of the pro. And I'll make one last comment. One thing that I learned very quickly because I bought this business with the whole concept of being a business guy and not knowing a thing about pickleball. So I brought in two. As everyone here knows, it's the quality of the people you surround yourself with is far more important than how smart you think you are yourself. And so I brought in two Hall of Fame pickleball players that are reputed to be the most respected, the winningest double pair of women pickleball players in the history of the game. And they've added the expertise that I rely explicitly on in regards to understanding the game. And it's been a godsend to surround myself with people less smarter than myself. And on that note, Barry. Of course. Yeah, tell your story, Barry. It started with tennis, right? So. Uh, as a teenager, I began playing tennis. Uh, won the Florida High School Championships uh, at 18. Uh, scholarships anywhere I wanted to go. Went to the University of Illinois, D1. Uh, as a freshman, played number one singles and doubles, which is quite uh, unusual for a freshman. Uh, played on the pro tour for a little bit. Came back to the area of Sanibel Island, which is just north of here. Uh, I was a director of tennis operations at the resorts there. Um, just the lifestyle of this area drew me to that. Um, then, about 40, I started developing an issue with my neck. And um, eventually, my neck fused at about 7% movement with my neck. So I cannot move my neck. Had to stop playing tennis. And one day, I was in a recreation center in Fort Myers, and I heard this click, 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 click. <laughs> this was 15 years ago. So talk about legacy and a dinosaur. When I first started playing pickleball, there were three paddles, all right? And there's got to be at least 3,000 now. There was the wooden one, a champion, and I think a pro-life. So I stumbled on this game uh, 15 years ago, and it changed my life. So even with a disability, it enabled me to go out and play at a very high level. Um, long story short, I won the U.S. Open uh, Pro event in 2019, two world champions, Atlanta Open, Texas Open, twi- et cetera, et cetera. Play, you know, that uh, National Pickleball League, I know all of the the guys in that, and so I still play uh, a lot, and, and 
I've seen the sport um, grow dramatically. Um, I do wear two hats. Um, so I'm a, a Florida a realtor down in this area. I developed uh, pickleballcommunitiesflorida.com, which is uh, specifically for those looking to come down to this area and they want pickleball. Where you have you know golf communities, you'd be surprised how many good people earmark this area specifically for pickleball. It is the pickleball capital of the world. You may may not have heard that term, but what that means is that there are more dedicated pickleball courts than anywhere else per capita. So each of these subdivisions, D.R. Horton, uh, you know, Pulte, they're all building 16, 24 courts in their uh, facilities. So it, it's amazing to see that. I also love, you know, as much as I like being on the podium and winning, you know, gold medals, um, my passion is sharing the pickleball love with people and introducing them to the sport. And so I also do uh, pickleball camps uh, throughout the Midwest in the summer when the real estate business isn't quite, you know, it's seasonal, so it's not as busy. Um, going to Costa Rica in March, and I, I do these things. And I've, I've had a, 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 a nice experience to see the sport grow. Uh, I was talking to Seymour uh, Rifkin, uh, affectionately known as Riff. He's in the Hall of Fame. He is one of the governing bodies that certify people to be able to teach. It's called the IPTPA, the International Professional Teaching Association. And um, he told me something on the phone the other day. He said, pickleball will become the number one sport in the world. And that just floored me. I, I thought about that. It resonated with me. That statement, he's like, so... You know, again, I, <laughs> that's his opinion, but I don't see any end in sight. Um, COVID came, I built a court at my house, I have a court at my house. Uh, getting courts is, is a huge problem. My wife plays at Bob's facility quite a, quite a bit. She travels an hour from Fort Myers to Naples just to get that, the ability to play. I, I have to travel at least an hour, um, I mean, play at the whole court. But so the demand is, is still there, a strong, strong demand. Um, monetizing it, I'll leave that to the smarter hats in the room, but there is opportunity. I see this for um, no end in sight. Um, so, uh, yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, from, from my perspective, I think that, you know, investment in pickleball is going to continue. Um, that's pretty much what the other question. Okay, um, yeah, question back there. Yeah, just on that point, um, since you're a player, you never left the USTA, right? Yes. Does the does football have like a equivalent of that? Yes. So, <laughs> yeah, that, that Bob's laughing because so there's um, two main organizations, the PPA, uh, which you mentioned, and then the APP. So those two organizations are the, the viable USTAs of, you know, I mean, tennis went through that too. Like they merged and then, you know, you had the WTA. and the, So right now the, the pros uh, are more of the PPA 
and then the general public is more to the APP. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah. Yeah. So from that from that standpoint, there's, there's a yeah, there's a grassroots uh, movement in, in in America. They just had, for example, the NCA. This is where the, the sport, is, in my opinion, is going to grow when you get the young kids involved in the sport, whether it's from the school, um, you know, intramurals or actually in, you know, their PE classes. It's it's ironic, but I've I've been told by several people that in the 60s, uh, they were they played pickleball inside their PE program. Can you so guys talk about where does this word pickleball come from? And I want to give you, we have, this is in Bainbridge Island, where we did one of our events. Yeah. Well, one of the questions where the word pickleball came from is that the, the one of the, my board members, Jennifer LaCour, her family knew the founding family, and it was, uh, pickleball was invented in 1965 on Bainbridge Island. Uh, long story short, is these uh, three gentlemen, three families, and actually our professional team is the Naples JVB United, and everyone says, what's JVB stand for? Stands for the initials of the founders of the game, Jack, Bill, and Barney. And, uh, and it, uh, they happen to have a dog, and this their original pickleball court that they built didn't have a fence, and whenever the ball rolled off the court, they yelled to their dog, pickle ball. And <laughs> so that was they eventually got to the point where that was how they call it. So that is the true originating name, pickleball. The last comment that I'll make, and then I know we've got to get going, is the question is where the growth is. Hang on, because uh, Asia, India, China, Japan, when they they are just starting to jump into this, and when they jump in, they jump in with more than two feet. And with their background in badminton and table tennis and just the, the nature in which they train their athletes, it's going to be it's just a mammoth explosion of the game that uh, will just be, makes the United States seem pretty, uh, pretty tame. We have one pickleball pro among our, you see Dave Crew in the blue? Okay. By the way, my man had his hair was kind of here, but he, he is a... Uh, He's a racquetball pro and a pickleball pro. So we do an event every year coming up here in Seattle. So we'll come back to the home of pickleball. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to add one thing. Why? I mean, obviously it's very social. It's not doesn't cost a lot of money to play as opposed to like golf or some of those other sports. Um, but what is really great about pickleball is that you can play with you know, a bad leg or a disability like I have, and you don't need any uh, prior sports um, history at all. My wife, for example, never played pickleball or tennis or any sport for that matter, and she became, you know, a 5 player, which is a high-level player. Um, now, having said that, your background of racquetball or squash or especially tennis will absolutely help. But that's the beautiful thing about pickleball is you can come from all walks of life and pick up the game immediately. It's a very quick study. So that's a good thing for, for the growth of the, of the sport. Absolutely. Hey, hey Mark. Yeah. Yeah. It's no. absolutely awesome. No, this is real short. You're going to like it. It's awesome to have in our midst a world champion in Barry. 
That's absolutely sensational. He he deserves recognition. When when Bear, uh, when Jack brought up the sports fund that's being developed, I couldn't help but have to at least say, what's the biggest struggle that that a shoe company has or a facility to really start meeting the market? It is that capital expenditure to get off the ground because I'm a firm believer that a really well-run facility or business can have a 20 to 30 percent, you know, cash on cash return, you know, which is uh, reasonable, I think. Um, and uh, but it's that capital that the average person doesn't have, so we just may have some conversations. Absolutely. And Jack, home of that other, we have another Cincinnati-based company, Nettie's. They created the Wonder Bread. Uh, of, uh, of apparel. Uh, there you go. It's a Cincinnati, and, and there's a Denison in Michigan. She was in Michigan, and her sister was in Denison. So we, we got to support this company. So thanks, Mary. We're going to switch gears, and I guess pun intended, because we're going to talk about motorsports. Very unique things are happening on the motorsports uh, landscape. This is our last segment, and then I know Angela, you're sort of a hybrid. Uh, as well, but Ron Michael, Spat Mike, my partner, sits in Germany. They are, you know, my dad was a race car driver. Maybe stories later about Paul Newman and Mario Andretti. But, but Michael, why don't you come up and, and I almost can't, we, we have to do motorsports because Michael and I are so passionate about it. Are we here? Yeah. Maybe I can ask. We have to have a look to Pitbull, which is at the moment a more gas-based type of drone, which is more focused on the major populations. We like to talk about something which is also important. It's motorsports. It's development of technologies. It's development of new racing series in the world. And we're not talking about something which is specific in the US. We like to talk about something which is unique and try to bring in further people to those things which can create cause of value. And the value of motorsports is not so that they are doing races. The value of motorsports is behind that one. These guys, they were on my left side and Nick on the right side, uh, has developed uh, a very unique idea how to do that. And to develop something which can be become that at a later stage, something which is used in EV cars very often, and this is a, a development which is going down to e-tech. And this is important that we do something here, and uh, that we can create something which is uh, more stable, growth-oriented. But then I will take it over to Jura, he's the manager of the team. Nick is a Formula One driver. Most of you have met them in the last uh, 24 hours. Uh, I'd like to get over to you and uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your story, what you have done in the past, and uh, why you did the setting up now Formula G. And is it useful to show the video sooner? Does yeah, it maybe we can get some videos out Yeah, let's. Who's heard of Formu Formula E? Oh, that's a good start. Thank you. 
to break down those barriers and allow people to come into motorsport. The world has changed so fast. The mission of this project is to bring electric motorsport to places where we've not seen it before. One chassis that covers two championships. Two different technology levels, but it's only one car. As that we bring down the costs a lot and make it easier for, for people to enter. Motorsport today is a very homogeneous industry, and that's where homology essentially came to create opportunities for people who want to get into motorsport. Our business basically is to try and create people who can believe in themselves and go forward. Six IndyCar events. So 
when we start tracing, we are already going to be coming around the crowds of 100,000. Largely, we blame circuits, which are streets, and not the overs, because our cars aren't sitting for overs, etc. So, that's what we are at Popology. At this point in time, we have franchises from around the world signed up. We are not fully subscribed yet for franchises, and that's due to design from our end, because a couple of the large OEMs around the world want to take a franchise bus in, in negotiation with them. Our calendar for Europe is already set up for 2025 with some of the largest uh, racing seasons going on up there, so we will be in front of crowds of 100,000 people for every race we go to. Asia is a welcome market for us, and that's going to be taking some time for us to work on there. So what we're looking at uh, in our model is to create two hubs, one in North America and one in Asia, where each set of cars reside. So we'll have a championship which does North and South America, North America in summer, and South America in winter, so it's the other way around. The same way it go back and forth, so it gets utilized and similarly with Europe also, where you're going to do Europe and Asia, is acceptable and going on. As of now, the cars being validated, we started testing in Spain, our case is there. We have two prototypes running around 5,000 kilometers, and we have started building our cars, on which we have two patents pending. One of us for this blue power technology, and the second is what we have live advertising on the car. So one of the problems we look at is, while racing is dynamic, advertising on the car is static. Why couldn't it be dynamic? We have these various, like, plastic, real way, etc. So they could uh, dynamic. And now what we have is got monochrome screens coming in and a couple of years, and she got other screens, you're going to come on. And also on the shaft, you know, what's the... Little bit of the center there, there's going to be other screens up there, and then you have lights where the formula G is written, which is the story of racing. So there's going to be a lot more interactivity between a fan and a car during a live race, which is never done before. I'm now going to introduce now Nick. Nick has raced in Formula 1 for 15 years, one of the most successful drivers. I think he's only one of 50 people in the world who has had more than 150 Formula 1 races, so he's in a very small niche out there. Nick was in Formula E, and if anyone looked at the first race ever in Formula E, the highlights video unfortunately had him in it. It was a big accident where his car flipped over, and we were really worried because that was the first race ever. We're not too sure what's going to happen with that, and what's going to happen with the car. This is endangering you also from that thing, and that basically created the championship because it was iconic. It was the last corner. He was going for the lead, and maybe about 15 years going to finish. Someone comes and knocks him out. If I Google it, can I find that? Sorry? Can I find it if I Google it? Yeah, okay. Click right Beijing 2014. Can you maybe find that? It was Beijing, what year? 2014, September 2014. 2014? Because I remember on our Zoom, you were talking about, like, could you have done anything different at the end of that turn? Because you were in second? Thank you. Yeah, I remember you asking me if I could have done anything different, and for once I came to the conclusion that I think I did correct, and I would have hoped and would hope that my um, that the guy in the other car would have behaved differently because I took to the inside, would have been in the lead, and then he just turned into me. Mm -hmm. And while I think we've all heard that in business and in sport, I also try to improve always and don't do a mistake twice, but on this case, it's just. The passenger, unfortunately, in the end, uh, the suspension broke, and so then I lifted off all the curb and headed for the barrier. And as we said on the call last week, then sometimes, unfortunately, everything happens in slow motion. It felt like for, forever being up in the air, flipping around. And I was waiting for yeah, the moment that I hit the ground. In the end, I was very lucky. I wasn't hurt. Nothing, nothing happened. Yeah, speaking a little bit about 
um, why I did join Formula G, Bilbao because my team was uh, at my in, in Formula E, and created a it created a very good relationship, which is not so common between a, a team boss and, and a driver. And um, actually, I was probably a little bit spoiled in my life and career that I could live, uh, live my dream of, of racing. And after that, I spent most of the time with my family, got three kids. But then when this opportunity came on, um, Bilbao presented this, this idea. Um, being with a group of 12 people at the moment, all working hard and um, feeling that that enthusiasm, enthusiasm, and Nick, we have to be there. I don't want to say. Yes, on a movie when someone's purposely moving to the left to crash into you and move you off the road. Or something like a speed chase. Yeah, you said you made it sound so casual he did this like awkward move. That looked it's very intentional. Yeah, most people say that if I look at this objectively I would say the same thing is we were teammates in another race series in sports cars and um, I didn't believe that he does it on purpose. I mean if you look at it it looks like it but if I would have thought so at this point in time, I would have uh, knocked him down and not just said, uh, hey, I, 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 I thought that was weird to see that. No, I like yeah, I was waking up a little bit also, the part where I was, was up in the air. So. And then it was a very important moment for electric cars, electric racing, Formula E, and then also for us in Formula G, because it did show that the cars were safe. I remember everybody on the first race was very worried, not, not only about me, but also about the fact that um, you know, something bad happens with the electricity and that could have been or was a make or break moment for, for electricity. So these lithium batteries? Yeah. So there are some explosive potential? Oh yeah, these these like to the intersection of worlds, so you can get fried and the drivers are taught that in, a, in an emergency how to get out of the car and the marshals also taught how to walk on these vehicles. But not when it's upside down. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't teach you that? 
I'm no, you have to jump off normally, it's not right. When I look at the picture behind up here, the, the top left has got my car on top of the biggest crashes, the one up there, the red and white, is it in the Mahindra cars? Oh, yeah, this is probably going to be, we spent a lot of money on the chassis. And uh, that so, is up there. So next year, when, when we have invested at 361 Sports, maybe into you, what? You will have started racing, yes. and what, like, what do you see the next five years of, of Formula G? Think of Formula G, it's like three business pillars of what we're looking at. Motorsports will be around 75 percent for business, 20% is innovation. We basically will be doing race to road technologies, and you already have a couple of projects going on right now. One is for cooling systems for batteries, etc. with Shell, we're working with. So, innovation is going to be a large big part, and what we did earlier when the last eight years where I was in Mahindra with the Formula team was when we went and started making electric cars. And it was very funny because in India, I was CEO of a very small electric car company. We moved into the part of the group, which is Mahindra. We were basically one of the world's slowest electric cars. We tried to do 060, never E60. They came to India to drive it in Delhi and he went on a Formula One track with a car. And literally, the guy who was interviewing could walk next to him. <laughs> and five years later, we basically launched a brand which is now making cars in Italy called Pininfrina, that's the automobile Pininfrina, which is the world's fastest electric car, or the world's fastest car. So we went from the slowest to the fastest in five years, and most of the technology came out from our racing. So we how fast is that? That car does zero to 100 in less than two seconds. Standing start 200, less than two seconds. Uh, 1,900 horsepower. Now, that's going to be the, the regular car that you're going to have on the road? Uh, the that's, right. that's a road vehicle car. There are 150 units being produced of it. And he's a very famous basketball player, ex basketball player, who used the number 23. He's got one of those cars. Right. Yeah, that was the next racing number also in motorsport because he had been doing that basketball player. Anything other thing people twice your height, <laughs> But not, not LeBron, the original 23. Yeah. So, so uh, if you think, why well, I understand it, Michael knows this better, is that you're sort of democratizing it, that every car is basically the same from the specs, but what differentiates the, the driving, but also the software? Software differentiates driving and the engineering behind how you set up a car. Yeah. So in electric racing, there's a lot of simulation which happens before you go to racetrack, because see, these cars do not have enough energy to finish the race. We regenerate approximately 40% energy, what we would use in the race, from the car itself. Mm. And now we then start looking at what's the best way of doing it, which corners are the best you start regenerating energy from, and then how you get your race strategies, etc. So engineers may produce difference of here, controls, etc. So we have 108 sensors of the car, which is like transmitting data, and then how fast can you anticipate the data, how can you get uh, the, what your computer is doing at the, uh, the same time. And motorsports is one of this unique um, sport where the first person you want to beat is your teammate. So like, while you're on the same team, you have two cars in the team, the first person you want to beat is your own teammate. Because that's where you start to go the same team where I'm the better driver than the other person. So that's also the plan we have to try and see that how do we give equal opportunity to both the people in, in during the race. And these are short races, like 45 minutes. So you have to work on a strategy where both the drivers can help each other. But at the same time, you don't hinder each other. And that typically happens when you try to help each other. You start building and tripping up. Maybe we can stay a little bit longer on um, how to commercialize uh, Formula G and uh, what uh, the impact of part of that. There was an article about Jaguar, uh, which uh, started quite early in Formula E, 
and uh, they described how they did that. They started with a car, uh, with a battery, and they can run 100 kilometers. Uh, because recuperation was not a big issue for them. They have not done that. Yeah? So they uh, got back 10 to 50% of the energy during the race. And uh, the car was uh, on 220 kilometers speed. Now they said, okay, after six years development, and we have a lot of testing, we have 340 kilometers speed, but we do 60% of recuperation during the race. And this brought us back to uh, the uh, production of serial, uh, serious cars to a much more better efficiency of the batteries and the battery use. And you are collecting data. You know, what, is it, uh, what, uh, what do you think uh, it's coming from your series to uh, those uh, companies uh, which can commercialize the data you're collecting and how you like to do that? That's a very interesting uh, question, Michael. So a lot of the existing OEMs and online are looking to take a team in a championship, largely to start, as you said, collecting data, systems, sensors, what can be done. And giving a case in point, going back to my own organization, which I was for 16 years, which is Mahindra, which is an Indian automotive company. We basically learned a lot from Formula E, which went into our road cars. We could go from the slowest car to the world's fastest car, but at the same time also trying to teach people how to drive efficiently. And I remember one of the first programs we did was, we were the world's largest sellers of electric tuk-tuks. And we wanted to go and teach these drivers how, by just using, making a few changes in the driving style, they can extend their range around 20%. At the moment they can extend the range to 20%, it's Software possibly sensors. 
Uh, yes, so uh, we have two categories as I said. This is the first championship of a single carbon category. That's an entry-level category, which is what we call G2, Formula G2. That's going to be starting from drivers from around 16 years old to around 18 to 19. They will have a limited set of variables which can go into the car, turn the setups, electronic, electronic, differential control, your tape control, your sensor laws, and, and stuff like that. And similarly, the mechanical side also, in terms of how much cast your camera, what you're uh, looking at. And as you go to G1, which is a senior category, there's going to be more parameters open. But initially, the first two, three years, you basically want to keep it on parameters rather than having software development. You might open certain amount of software development in a couple of years to come. But initially, it's just going to be done by us, and then they have a screen where they can go do the daily setup changes. A question for Nick. From a driver's perspective, Nick, how is the responsiveness of the car, the performance, the interaction compared to internal combustion engines or Formula One? Well, the biggest difference is, as you actually all already implemented in your question, uh, is the reactiveness of the throttle pedal. On any combustion engine, even in Formula One, there's always a small delay, there might be a misfire, which is not uh, happening in Formula G for example. So you get exactly what you ask for exactly in the moment of time. And that makes it very interesting and also fun for a race driver to know you can control it to exactly the same level that you want it to be. So my question is about competitive balance. Uh, one of the big issues in Formula One this year was that the Red Bull team was so much better than any other team, and it frankly made the, the racing kind of boring because Max Verstappen won every single race. How, how are you ensuring with Formula G that there is uh, balance among all the different teams that are participating? That's a, a very important matter to us, and this is also why we will not open regulations fully also on the software side because we are not Formula 1 and we are not Formula E, we want to give a level playing field. Um, but we also want to give the chance to teams to perform better than other teams, but this is also happening in other junior series. We will have a, a one-make cup, but still small differences, if they just make hundreds or tens of a second of a difference per lap, will decide between winning or losing a race. And uh, we will produce a task by ourselves. And then we will lease the cars to the teams, so they will all have a level playing starting field. Right. Hi, um, uh, Jason. Uh, I was at um, uh, Las Vegas Formula One. It was so much fun. Now, part of the fun for people is the sound, right? So for E Formula One, there's no sound. Now, do you guys work with uh, my friend, who's the uh, founder of Families for Philanthropy, Rod Simon? Okay, he tells me he's involved, right? And he said that part of that is to inject sound into the e-formula point car. You guys thought about doing that? Well, in year three, you're going to have sound in the car. So we are working with a year one supplier out of Germany, who's actually providing us the motors and the inverters in the car. We've already won the World Championship in Formula E and won them all last year, so that's where our sponsor's giving us. So they're coming out with an actuator which basically is like a 200 gram actuator that sits in the chassis and we can vibrate the chassis and make sound. So basically we can create an exhaust note from the vibrations of a chassis. 
So for example, one of those cases that like, when you finish the race with a guy who won it, you can literally play the national anthem of the, the, uh, the driver's country by Suga Shazi. <laughs> now how much sound you want depends on the speakers that are recording it. But this is an activity which is just one exams. And our challenge right now is to try and see if we can bring it on maybe another 50 grams or something like that. Because we have to certain wage on the car and some other challenge we're trying to do. But yes, in Formula G, lights and sound are going to be really important. So we have, we have trying to tell the story of racing through lights and sound. That's why we have the various screens you might have seen on the car and various lights. They're called, we say, if people go to a racetrack, the guy is looking at an iPad, so they look at time, and he said, why should you look at that? Look at the car, the car will tell you the story. And that's why you're using lights and sound going forward. And I would agree, I would love a nice sounding V10 engine, for example, like when I was in Formula 1, I still enjoy that massively. On the other side, you also have to look at the population, what Formula E has done. They have attracted a different audience. They've not only attracted the petrol heads, but they attracted a lot younger audience, uh, more mothers coming with their kids, which is something that doesn't happen, for example, in Formula 1. That's a really important point. Because if you look at Formula One, if you look at the demographic, I think it's on 75% male, 25% best, that's women and children. In Formula E, we have a group of uh, eight years. We have around 50 50 men to women and children. And that's something we see for going on in Formula G also. The other thing which is really interesting is okay, why we start the quiet, you hear different sounds. You hear the tire gripping the track, you hear the tires sliding. And one of the most interesting things I noticed was that fathers are speaking to their kids and talking about racing while the racing is going on rather than having headphones or there or trying to block out the sound. He's the father actually saying, hey, this is what's happening, this is where the, the tires are sliding, this is what you can hear, you can hear the tires jerking around the track, etc. So these are different sounds. But yeah, at the same time, it's not a visceral of hearing a V12 or V10, it basically makes the heartbeat go. I think it's an interesting sound. And this is going to be a sound we are all going to get used to when things get to cover. Maybe we can um, talk a little bit about, a bit about the different uh, races uh, they like to do. Uh, I'd like to give you an example why I believe Formula G and Formula E is completely different. There have been a huge uh, tournament in uh, the UK. The last London Formula E uh, event was the biggest event ever. They did this in town, in London, have gone through all, uh, different uh, places and halls, which is not possible with a gas, uh, gasoline car because uh, you cannot do that there. It's too, too dangerous. Yeah, and they attract, especially what you said, the younger people, and if you see the, the, uh, the people watching the gasoline Formula One, these are the people over 35 and uh, above that one. The Formula E is attracting those ones which are beyond that. So it's family-owned business. Yeah, so it's more attractive to do that and uh, go there. But um, coming back to the point... To the point of, point of youth, what about e-gaming? Because we've all seen the movie Gran Torino and, and how democratization, just the gaming side, can, can you, do you have a strategy to bring that uh, Mark, dimension? That's an interesting point, but that's exactly about our strategy is, and to export, I think motorsport may be the only sport where persons can move from the virtual world to the real world. And we've had cases where real good drivers have come out from just being sim racers to the real, uh, real world. So in our project, what we're looking at is part of we're actually setting up simulators for every team. So at a base, we're going to have 10 simulators, one per team. Before the season starts, they come into all the simulation work there. But during the race, you're going to have the fifth driver sitting in the simulator and integrating back to the real world. So that's something which you're going to be quite different. And that's, uh, that's a big 
corporate story of the e-sport kind of thing. There is a Formula One driver right now, a very popular Formula One driver who runs a big e-sport team himself. And most probably he should be taking team with us where everyone comes into a team from e-sport. The mechanics, the engineers, everyone comes from e-sport and then have one racing in a bigger race. Can you incorporate pickleball into this? I showed a pickleball one I was in the Middle East 48 hours ago and I'd gone to a paddling court. I just kind of understand there's paddle and pickleball, there's an intersection going to come because that's one of the fastest growing sports. Yeah, the European aspect, the European aspect, pickleball is bigger than pickleball right now. And in the United States, of course, pickleball is bigger than pickleball. So um, they're uniquely different sports. Uh, do I think pickleball will survive, or do I, you know, I'm not an expert on that. But I think that just based on the availability and, and the ease of playing pickleball, that pickleball will probably outpace, uh, you know, the pickleball sport. But that's just my opinion. I was trying to find we have pickleball team owner that's not in the room now. Uh, I see him on the pickleball court, it's changing. But we're sort of, you know, back a little bit more to uh, champions. I feel like we, should, we have just a few more minutes. Um, but I, I want to have some time for Angela to tell her story. And, and then what you're doing with the broader pro athlete universe, because that's an important component of what we want to be working with. Parkman forward do that. Let's wrap up still in, in a few sentences. What is the main mission, what you're doing, and what is the main driver that this becomes successful? Main mission. I think to bring different people to motorsport. The right of motorsport is a very homogeneous community. It's basically white Western Okay, how do you bring people into the sport? That they cannot, if you want to be a driver, people want to be engineers, people want to support them. That's what we're trying to do. Formula G is to democratize this and bring more people from around the world into the sport. And I think that's something that's really important. And that's why a second G is good. We think that's it's going to be really important. Then they're trying out the universities, they're trying out the Formula student programs around the world, how we can attract them and bring them into our sport. Final point Would you describe yourself more as sports or as a deep tech company? I would also say this is a good example because we are transferring deep tech to sports and combining everything with an entertainment part of that, which is going to esports. This is, from my perspective, one of the biggest challenges we have in sports that we combine different areas and bring this together and find a business model which then can sustain and work profitably for everybody. Yeah, so at the moment, we see a lot of opportunities, and that's why we are supporting this in 361. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks very much. Thank Oh my gosh, you could probably just Google, I know my one hour is on there, but you don't want to watch an hour of me going around in a circle, so that might be the end. I could have definitely brought something, but we can get get it going and I can share this. Tell us your story, and importantly, both you and what you're doing with all the athletes. Yeah, I can do, I think, a really nice wrap-up before everybody gets motivated and goes out to play pickleball and move, because I know we've all been sitting here for a while, but um, for those that weren't in the room yesterday, 
pleasure to be on the panel with a, with a bunch of incredible people working in the industry of the business of sports. That's what the panel and the conversation is about, right? So um, I'm from Canada. My name is Angela Gorin. And not only am I a retired now uh, professional athlete, but also a tech founder and part of the 361 community. And I think one of the biggest things, and I think I'm going to tie it in right because Jack, that I know that you're still in the room, and also Stephen standing at the back, um, this is about a collective. And when I'm really excited about the business of sports, so my background from a sports side, um, I've been a part of three different national teams in Canada from team rowing, um, triathlon, but my longest stint was as a pro, professional cyclist. So last year, as the community here knows, I had the pleasure to represent Canada on the world stage going after the UCI one-hour indoor cycling record, which I broke for Canada as an elite female, not just a master's. So I clocked at, I apologize for those that don't, I don't know miles as a conversion, but 44.7 kilometers was what I did in an hour going around in a, in a circle in Aguascalientes, Mexico, which is where Armando's from. So you got to meet him later. Um, but I laced my shoes back on because one of the biggest, most important parts, and I think this is going to tie in yesterday's conversation around impact with Chelsea and the panel, is when I raced and competed, taking you back to 2004, which was what I was training for, which was the Olympics in Athens, uh, women in sport were not paid. There wasn't a lot of conversation around that. 2004, I graduated from university, had a great job, which I thought I would continue, which is why I live in Ottawa, Ontario, worked for government. But what was interesting was from 2004 to 2012, I competed on a very high level for the UCI as a paid athlete, but paid by meaning I got to surf couches and see the world. Um, meanwhile, male counterparts were making paychecks to do the exact same thing on the same team. So the honor to be on Team Symmetrics and Team Tipco, which then became Team Tipco Silicon Valley Bank. And I want to paint the picture for the people in the room because I think it's so important. The reason why I trained as an athlete was because I loved it. It was a part of my community. I loved the fact that we could give back to kids. And that became a really big part. So you look at my history, if you do want to Google me, I competed not only in the UCI, but when I left sport in 2012 and moved to Ottawa to work for the former Prime Minister of Canada, I got call to action to bike across Canada for one of the longest standing foundations called the Canadian Wildlife Federation. So Robert Bateman, famous artist, Parks Canada. I had this incredible opportunity to cycle from the west coast of Canada, from Vancouver Island, which is where I grew up, all the way to Halifax. And that was to raise funding and awareness for outdoor education programs. And I got to see this incredible part of people and what sport can do to bring business and education and community together. And it really excited me as something that I felt personally I could invest in. That could be my impact. I didn't have to sign a check. I could motivate others to become a part of something bigger. Now, I skip ahead to the future because, you know, after working for government for all of only two years, that's when I got into starting my first social enterprise, which gave back to kids. And I'm really proud about that because it taught me more lessons that I think the kids realize because I fell in love not more with sport, but fell in love more with the motivation to give back and learn about financial literacy and affordability of being involved in sport. And this ties in what everybody's been listening to because it was really missed. Mark, you brought it up, the, you know, the e-sports, right? Where is the future of sport? Where are we going with this? And it's fandom. And this is big piece missing. That's a gentleman that joined us today from Cincinnati, but you were in Germany. You're focused on commerce. So for those that know, what I fell into was the fintech space and payments. I saw the action of taking sport and marrying that into payments, gamification, and commerce. Because at the end of the day, anybody playing pickleball, 
they got to consume. They got to buy a new pair of awesome shoes so they don't sprain their ankle like hopefully none of us do do today because <laughs> I got my running shoes. So I'm hoping to get a pair of Tyrell. So yeah, I've got to get some pickleball shoes. But I think that's that ability to say, so I moved into a space to say, I want to connect the B to B, but the B to C, so business to business and business to consumer, it's really at the end of the day, us as a fan that follows it, whether you're into listening to sports engine motors, right, ralving up, or is the next generation wanting to listen to an esports, which drives me, I love that idea, like I want to hear the tires, I want to see the parents be involved. So Tapico Technologies is, is my company where we focus on, again, that intersect between marketplace, ad tech, and payments and banking. And we created a glorified Starbucks rewards card. That's the easiest way to explain it, where we've got a marketplace of brands direct to us, not to third parties, where we've actually lowered their cost to acquire a customer, the triathlete, the cyclist, the pickleballer. And we put those brands in our marketplace and we allow the consumer with Athletica rewards to consume first party data. It's decentralized. Oh, there you go. Here, you can hear my story. <laughs> in Florida too in about two minutes I discovered this morning. coach actually it was interesting in 2004 when I left rowing um, he still coaches the juniors in Victoria and I think what's super cool is yeah talking about leadership and somebody finding somebody something in you he didn't want me to leave sport and you guys will all laugh because I was riding a clunky steel bike I was late to get to the boathouse at Elk Lake one day and the rule of thumb was that if you didn't show up you lost your seat in the boat so I blew past this pack of cyclists and it happened to be Hushang Amiri's team that were training and he recognized who I was and he came up and he said, do you want to try cycling? And I don't think you should leave sport. Interesting enough, Victoria obviously boasts a lot of great sport because it has no snow. It's a beautiful spot, but um, he introduced me to track cycling back then. We had the Commonwealth Games, so it was super, super, you know, for me, I fell in love. I got in. It was very similar to rowing, you know. Yeah. So. So we're over time. Mm-hmm. I know we can continue this discussion. One last thing. Apparently, someone was so inspired by yesterday's discussion that they wrote a song. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Do you want to say this is no, this, this is an, an amazing two-step. And event. also, what is it that person come up with? The two people are just joined from Mario. Poland. Let me have this. Yeah. This was, this was an extraordinary experience <laughs> yesterday for the few people that were in the philanthropy 
discussion <clears throat> at that round table. We have that table again next year. Yes. And here's what happened. We created that group. The Naples Writ now exists. And Naples Writ stands for all programs, philanthropic programs to change lives, must have reasoning, Writ, R-I-T, reasoning or rationale. Number two, impact that is measure, actionable, measurable, and T, transparency. High transparency is required within the now established Naples grid. And so inspired was Mario's that he went out, he stayed up all night and created a song which dedicates and establishes for all time the Naples grid. Right. So we're going to show this slide. Just before, just before, because you connect to these other two people. Oh, yeah. Um, right, so new, new people, yeah. They can just introduce themselves. Hello, uh, everyone. Uh, my name is Maciej Kiewicz. I come from Poland. Uh, I lead uh, for the Polish government uh, the fund of funds that invests in, uh, in venture capital funds. It's called PFA Ventures, but it's not a, it's not a GP. We are, we are an LP. Uh, we are an investor in 70 funds, uh, including 80 funds that focus on, on Poland. That means that uh, practically every every six months uh, we have a portfolio review. We see 500 startups. We listen to their stories. We see which are which are growing, which are not growing. We also see those that go to the United States and uh, try to conquer uh, local market here. That is very interesting. Um, just to give you super shortly two examples, there is uh, you might have about Booksy.com. It's a it's another Booking.com for hairdressers, barbers, manicurists, etc. It's a, it's almost a unicorn business now. Another one. Uh, Another one is uh, a business called ISI. It's a new type of satellites. These are satellites that are radio satellites. So unlike typical uh, optical satellites, they can see through clouds and they can see at night. And I can, if anyone is interested, I can later tell you how those satellites are used now in the, in the Russian-Ukraine conflict. It's really interesting to. I can tell you some, some stories that we heard from the company. You gonna play pickleball with us? You can, you can. I'm sure. <laughs> but if, are you gonna be on the pickleball courts with us playing? I, I I'm not sure, but uh, th th this is a fantastic uh, yes. technology. Well, no, no, what I want to do is continue the conversation. You'll come join us. Ah, yes. And you're gonna be in Miami. Yes, I'll be here today and tomorrow. Yes. So if anybody is interested. Apart from this, on a personal note, uh, I also co-lead the uh, University of Chicago in Poland, so I have a lot of connections there. And also, uh, before being in, in privately before, I was also at McKinsey Company, so I have a network in Poland pretty, pretty good. If anybody is interested in some fantastic startups uh, from Poland that go, that go global or go to, to the U.S., there are some very interesting business uh, and investment I think that's a segue to Oscar, because... Yeah. <coughs> Uh, hi, my name is Oscar Panowski. Uh, this is my third time at a 3361 event. Uh, I'm from Poland as well, and I recently joined the family business uh, two years ago. Uh, we mainly deal in audiovisual equipment. We do rental, we 
provide uh, multimedia equipment for science centers, museums, we do full exhibitions. Uh, we work a little bit in the US as well. Uh, and on top of that, we also organize the 60 Million Congress, which uh, Marcus helped us organize a little bit this, uh, this year. And that's happening on the 1st and 2nd of February in Miami. Uh, I can also tell you more about it later, but I'm going to take up too much time now. Thanks. Yeah, and you'll see some of those startups, and, and we're, we're going to be dedicating more time because I think this is a huge opportunity for our community to invest in Polar and help those companies come in. So, back to Jack's intro. So, Marius, why don't you go to the podium? Yes. Since you're. I, I thought you were going to dance back while you're doing it. Like, this was a deal, no? Okay. Go up there so what? we can. You're going to put a bow on, 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 the, his, on the Naples conference. His, his, words, his words are up there, and the music will be in the air. I mean, I just like to say, but like, I've read a lot about yesterday the hopes coming when, like, in both directions, and we did a um, transcription, like, just also recording, and then Jesse uh, was giving us really nice kind of uh, wrap up. And uh, this stood out why, because um, in all this looking for the solution in the complex world, uh, we might always try to find an easy kind of repeatable process and solution definition. But our love about this is just a set of very simple to remember principles and also hopefully easy to implement. And it was agreed just whatever also Cheshik uh, he was giving as a result of the whole conversation was actually resonating with whatever you put posted there as a, as a finding. And uh, that's why I love it and so that is song. Yes. So we just say Thank you, everybody. This is great. Yes. <laughs> 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 if you drive, hey, if you 
Come join our 361 firm community of investors and thought leaders. We have a lot of events created by the community as we collaborate on investments and philanthropic interests. Join us.